Well, good afternoon, um, everybody out there. Um, thank you for being with us, albeit virtually, um, for, for this year's edition of the, the Christchurch Youth Service. Um, it's It's been difficult this year. Um, we've, we've not met together for probably around about nine, ten months now, um, but we're going to try and and do our best to, to bring you some some semblance of a, a service for this year. So if you're tuning in, a really warm welcome. Um, and it's it's great that you can you can tune in and be with us virtually. Um I don't know if um, some of you are finding it a little bit more difficult to get in the, the Christmas spirit this year. Um you saw some of our youths a few minutes ago doing their very best to get in the Christmas spirit and, and I think succeeding. Um it's been uh, it's been really fun looking at some of the videos and, and going through some of the ideas that they've come up with. Um, as I say, I don't know if you're finding it difficult to, to get into the Christmas spirit this year, um, but certainly after the year we've had, um, from my point of view, it's um, it feels a bit more of a concerted effort this year uh, to, to get into the Christmas spirit. There's not quite the same vibe maybe um, as, as we're used to. Um, you know, We're used to things like shops being jam-packed, um, carol singers, Christmas markets, um, having your Christmas do at, at work or at, at college or school, maybe. Um, and for obvious reasons, we're not we're not really going to get much of that this year, which is a shame. Um, but nonetheless, Christmas is a time that we associate with hope uh, and joy and family time traditionally. Um, but after the year we've had, recapturing some of that excitement uh, perhaps may seem like like more of an effort. Uh, and who could have predicted this year? Eh? I know that's become something of a, a cliche um, online now, but you know, I think in, in 50 years' time, I imagine there'll be children in school learning about 2020. It's a, a strange thought, isn't it? You know, perhaps in their history lessons, looking at, at everything we went through this year, the suffering, the disease, the racial tension, the, the isolation that we've been through. Um, to, to coin a Yorkshire expression, we've, we've really had to dig in um, and we've really had to grit our teeth to get through it. Um, and I don't know about you, um, but the overriding emotion that I've experienced when reflecting back on 2020 um, is probably just one of exhaustion. Um, perhaps not physical exhaustion, but just that, you know, that emotion of just being tired and fed up of, you know, this, this constant grind, this so-called new normal that we've, we've had to get used to. You know, most of us have been stuck in the house for you know the last nine ten months uh, most of us have had to cancel holidays um, you may have been confined to a small space like in your house like I have to, to try and work every day um, and the majority of us have also had to deal with school closures for, for months on end and all the, the stress that that brings to our children it has been well and truly exhausting uh, which I guess brings me neatly onto the passage from from Isaiah 40, which I use read for us um, so so wonderfully. Um, now, those of you that have been in and around church for a little bit might recognise some of the verses um, from this chapter. It's it's a, a section of the Bible that we commonly use at Christmas. Um, verse three, for instance, is actually repeated in the New Testament by John the Baptist, um, who we've been thinking about recently in our most recent series. Um, and he actually uses verse 3 to describe himself uh, in the Gospel of John um, as the voice, literally the voice of one calling in the desert and preparing the way for the Lord. Now, there's an awful lot going on here, um, as we've heard. 
But kind of what drew me to speak about this, this particular chapter today, primarily is because of some of the imagery that we have running through this, this chapter of the people who are, as, as many of us are at the moment, I'm sure, tired, fed up, complaining, you know, are people that have been placed under hardship for a very long time uh, and are seemingly getting to, to the end of their tethers. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that our present difficulty is necessarily comparable to, to that of the ancient Israelites that we're reading about here, um, because the circumstances were very different. Um, but I certainly think that there's something about human nature um, and the human condition, particularly portrayed through the ancient Israelites, uh, and particularly how they react to the circumstances that they've been put into, which will hopefully draw us in uh, and lead us to, to some kind of empathy and hopefully to some form of, of application. So I guess the, the million dollar question is, what, what were the circumstances um, which led us to, to what we see here in, in Isaiah chapter 40 um, and what led them to this particular point of exhaustion. Um, if you just bear with me briefly, I'll, I'll try and provide a little bit of context. Um, so if we know our Bibles and we know that uh, a lot of the old, later Old Testament books um, cover what we call the Babylonian exile. Um, now, if you don't know what this is, there's, there's an awful lot to explore. Um, but kind of for the purposes of today, in brief, um, there was a time thousands of years ago uh, where God established a physical kingdom in Israel with a, a king as the figurehead. Um, and as is so often the case, um, it, it gradually grew away from God and the ideals that he wanted for his kingdom, uh, principally through, through one corrupt king after another uh, until God finally said, you know what, I've, I've had enough of this. Uh, and the nation of Israel was eventually conquered and divided up between the ancient powerhouses of Assyria and Babylon. Uh, now, initially, effectively, what took place was a, a mass invasion, uh, which resulted in a lot of people dying and, and culminated in the majority of the nation being displaced and forcibly moved into, into foreign territory. Now, we've seen over the past few years that some of the horrors that can be caused by mass migration and displacement, and we've seen it particularly in Europe. Um, but for the Israelites at this time, there was not only the, the huge hardship of being physically removed from their homeland. Uh, you know, many of them were killed in the process. If you read some of the portions in uh, Chronicles and Kings, it's, it's, it was a grim time. Um, but they also had to consider the, the people of God and how it affected their identity and their relationship with God directly. Uh, if someone gave you a pound for, for every time in the Old Testament, you read something along the lines of Israel or Zion, as it's sometimes described as being the dwelling place of God. Um, so for the people of Israel to be displaced from their homeland and from the nation of Israel carried with it the idea of being displaced from the presence of God himself. Uh, and if we look at verse 3, uh, we learn that this, exactly, this is exactly what God intended. Um, verse 3 describes Israel receiving double for all her sins. Um, and we can't really get around the fact that God wanted it to hurt. 
when when he moved moved his people out of their home. He wanted them to feel the loss of his presence. But we're also going to learn, thankfully, that this was not the end of the story. And God's plan and vision for his people, which includes you and I, if we are believers in Jesus, it carries with it far greater vision and purpose. Uh, now, I have to be careful here about how I draw present-day comparisons with, with this particular time. But, but as I said before, the basic raw emotion of the Israelites, how that's displayed in this passage, particularly how they're feeling at this point, hopefully we can relate to. Um, verse 2 talks of the hard service that the Israelites have been through. Now, I don't know if you call being confined to your house for the last few months hard service, but you know I, I've certainly found it difficult at times. Verse 30 talks of young people growing tired and weak. Verse 27 talks about the people of God complaining because that they think that he's essentially forgotten about them. Um, and when we look at this, you know, I'm sure a few of us have looked at the death toll on our televisions in in the last year and the, the racial tension and the violence. And, and, you know, perhaps we've been tempted to stop and think, you know, does God really know what he's doing here? Or, or like verse 27 describes, are our ways hidden from him? I also kind of think that it's it's a particularly British trait to complain about stuff. Um, you know, I guarantee you we all know somebody, uh, probably at work, maybe even at church, um, you know, they just get a massive kick out of being negative about everything. You know, nothing's always right. I could have done it better. It should have been done like this. You know, and you see people like that and you start to think, you know, is this person actually enjoying being negative? I don't know if it's if they consider it part of their sort of identity, but it, it seems an awful lot like they might be getting some kind of kick out of it. Um, you know, I feel like if, if complaining was an Olympic event, they'd probably smash all the other countries. Um, certainly, as British people, it feels somehow built into our mentality, maybe because it rains all the time, who knows, I don't know. Um, but if you read your Old Testament, even just a little bit, um, you'll find that it's a trait that we actually share with the ancient Israelites. They they loved a good moan. They were brilliant at it as well. Um, and if you, you cast your minds back to the story of Exodus and the story of Moses that most of us are familiar with, um, there's this, this time where the people of God are, are in slavery in Egypt and they're literally being worked to death um, by a, a tyrannical ruler. Um, so God raises up Moses um, we have the plagues, the, the people of Israel eventually break free. Um, and it takes them, if you read read the story of Exodus, it takes them till chapter 16 before they're complaining because they're a little bit hungry in the wilderness. Uh, and they say that it would have been better if the Lord had just killed us in the land of Egypt. You know, can't we go back? You know, they were literally being killed and, and they were having fond memories about it and complaining about the situation that, that Moses had brought them into. And here again, in verse 27, God has to say to them, uh, in the NIV translation, that is, why do you complain, O Jacob? Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, well, for good reason they're complaining. You know, they've been through hell pretty much. You know, I don't think that they're entirely unjustified by their complaining. So the, the burning question here then is, how is God going to respond to their set of circumstances? 
and here for us in, in 2020 when you know x amount of million people have died from a pandemic you know, 60 odd thousand people in this country um, and everybody's at each other's throats because of our views on race or our views on our civil rights or our human rights and our views on lockdown and all the rest of it what is god saying to us right here and now in the midst of all this melee and confusion well to the israelites the first thing that god says is is in verse six and he simply says to to isaiah the prophet i want you to cry out to my people now when i was at school um we had a, a dt teacher a design technology i don't know if it's still called that nowadays it makes me feel old um but I, we had this teacher called mr eccleston and he, he was of the old school i'll be honest this was sort of 15 20 years ago i don't know if you get away with, with teaching like this nowadays um but you know how it is when you're in school a load of you are sat in the classroom um and all the kids are sat down and it's that sort of five minute period before the teacher arrives um, and it's absolute carnage in it people throwing paper airplanes at each other giving each other wedges arguing shouting carrying on cracking jokes um, and often the teacher walks in and they can't can't control the classroom um, well, mr eccleston used to have a method whereby he would come in and get out a piece of wood um, probably about two 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 and a half feet long um i don't know what it was used for i think he just kept it to, to beat students with who knows um but he would get it out uh, and amidst all this shouting and melee he would bang this two piece of two by four down on his desk and i recall it very well now it, it sounded at the time to me like it was a gun going off um, and it always achieved the desired effect and that the class would always break into absolute silence instantly at the click of a finger um, and it's kind of a little bit like what what god's doing doing here in this chapter he's essentially he's banging the gavel uh, calling his people to attention because he wants them to hear what he's got to say um, so he doesn't sort of say, I'm going to politely suggest a few ideas that I've got. Um, you know, maybe you could add what I'm going to say to your agenda for your next meeting down the temple. Um, you know, he doesn't even say, you know, let's sit down and talk together, you know, tell me how you're feeling. Almost for want of a better phrase, he says, look, you need to shut up and listen um, because, because what comes next is going to be vitally important. So what is it then that we've got to hear that's so important? Let's, uh, let's consult the passage again. Uh, as was read for us before, verse 6. All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. And skipping forward a bit to verse 13. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Now, apparently, if you go back to verse 1 of this chapter, God's intention is to comfort his people. But if you read over those verses again, you might be forgiven for thinking that that's a funny way to comfort somebody. Um, you know, God essentially saying to us, we're, we are about as permanent as grass. We are mortal. We will wither and fall and die. 
Yeah, and at the same time, he says, we haven't got insight or knowledge or wisdom to be able to instruct God about anything. You know, God really wants to hammer this point home to us. And if you skip forward to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explores this, this same idea in Romans chapter 9. And there's a verse in there that, that sums this up quite succinctly. Um, and Paul says words to the effect of, does a piece of clay have the right to answer back? to the potter that made it you know it's it's a ludicrous idea by definition but the problem is to us as 21st century so-called enlightened human beings this idea is deeply offensive to us in so many ways now i'm not a philosopher i'm not a political commentator um, but it's often said of us as sort of Western people, broadly speaking, that we live in what you might call an individualistic type culture. If you want more sort of historical background on, on why this is the case, I'm sure Pastor Paul or Ash would, would explain it to you much better than I can. Um, but right now, as a modern Western person living in the United Kingdom, I'm assuming the majority of you listening are, are in the UK. Um, welcome if, if you're not, if you're coming to us from another country. Um, but right now, as a, as a modern Western person, you have never had a better opportunity throughout all of human history to express your individuality or your supposed value to the world. You know, we're in a position now where we can maintain social media platforms to express our opinions to the world whenever we want. Um, there's such a thing as human rights now, um, which wasn't always the case if you look back at human history. Um, Things like slavery are all but extinct in, in Western Europe and, and North America, um, although this is certainly not the case for other parts of the world. Um, you know, and we live in a democratic society where our vote actually counts for something. You know, certainly not the case looking back in history, certainly not the case when you look at other parts of the world. We're in an incredibly privileged position. Um, and crucially, we have freedom of expression. You know, we can say what we like and we frequently do about politicians, leaders, people in authority over us. You know, you try saying some of the things that we say today about our leaders, not even 500 years ago, um, and in all likelihood, you would end up being the leader of your head, to, to put it bluntly. Or even, you know, today, try going to North Korea and speak in your mind about people in charge and people in authority and, you know, see what, what ends up and what becomes of you. Now, we are afforded huge personal freedom of expression in this country. Uh, and at the same time, things like print advertising, television, social media, they constantly feed us the idea that we are special and meaningful. And as such, we, we have earned the right to various products and services and things that, that people want to try and sell us. Um, and in the biblical sense strictly speaking is that's not completely untrue you know the bible describes us as being made in the image of god that makes us very special of course it does you know we have dignity as the children of god and, and we are loved by him he tells us that he, that he loves us you know some of the ideas that i've mentioned are very in line with with biblical thinking god hates oppression he wants us to be free in one sense But here's, here's the rub. Because of our sin, because of our corruption, 
we have elevated ourselves and each other to the status of God in our own lives. We have gone from being the pinnacle of God's creation, the, the series finale, if you like, of the, the creation of the world is, is me and you as human beings. And we've, we've taken that idea and we've gone so far with it. And we've now made ourselves the pinnacle of everything. Uh, and we're told ourselves that we can eliminate the idea of God from this equation and we can just be whatever we want to be. We're told ourselves as, as so-called enlightened people that we have no need of a creator. So this is the reason God has to tell us, you are about as permanent as grass. You are limited. You are limited in your understanding. You're limited in your wisdom. You're limited in your lifespan. I don't know if anybody, hopefully older people watching this have ever seen the film Fight Club. Um, but it explores this idea quite interestingly of um, human beings coming to terms with the fact that actually they're not all that special. Um, you know, and the idea of the, the Fight Club um, is started um, as, a, as an outlet for the rage and the angst that these sort of lower middle class people in America are feeling because they've realized that their lives are just passing them by and they're just statistics and they don't really have any meaning or self-worth. So they apparently go looking for that in, in physical violence. And Brad Pitt's character in the film utters this famous line. He says, we have, we've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'll be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. He says, you are not a beautiful, unique snowflake. And I don't know about you, but, but I find myself considering this idea and just being absolutely appalled by it in my, in my sort of natural self, as much as I don't want to admit it. You know, I can be quite a selfish person at times and I don't like the idea of being told that I'm not as special as I think I am. Because in my mind, I'm very special. You know, my, my wife tells me often that I exist in this so a comfortable little bubble that includes my close family and friends and church friends uh, and I have my own routines uh, and as long as I get to you know go out on my bike occasionally and have a beer and a curry on a Saturday night and maybe watch a bit of football here and there and as long as everybody in my little bubble is okay and happy I'm, I'm not really that concerned as to, to what goes on out there I can I can shut off from the wider world quite easily uh, and that's because I've, I've set myself up as king of my little kingdom um, and in my head, I am important and I am valued and I have freedom. And by the grace of God, it's, it's something I'm trying to work on being a little bit more empathetic and selfless when considering the wider world. Now, I don't know if any of you lot can, can relate to this attitude, but God is telling me firmly here, again, that I am like grass. I need to hear this. My kingdom will fall. And unless I face the wider reality of what's going on around me, I'm going to be in for a very rude awakening when the reality of a fallen world comes in and bursts my little bubble. You know, anyone that knows me knows I'm, I'm partial to, to the sitcom Blackadder. Um, and there's a, a quote um, that kind of sticks in my mind when, when thinking about this idea where he says, um, taking this attitude is about as, as useful as having a barber shop on the steps of the guillotine. Um, so I guess... The burning question now is, 
why on earth have I chosen to depress you all with this information during a Christmas youth service for one? You know, some of us have had pretty much the worst year of our lives. And it seems a little bit of a strange topic, perhaps, but, you know, in some respects, that's precisely the point, isn't it? You know, we've never before felt the sting of our mortality and our limitations as human beings as we have done in 2020. You know, never have we seen a greater illustration of how fragile we are as we have seen in this, this past year. And this is our reality ultimately and to not accept our limitations as human beings would be the worst form of hubris. Just give you one more illustration and there's a, a film I love called The Thin Red Line. Uh, it's probably about 20 years old now. Um, it's a World War II film set in the, the Eastern theatre with the Americans fighting the Japanese in, in Guadalcanal. Um, and the fact that it's a World War II film is, is kind of just a plot device, really, um, to, to put forward the director's views on lots of different things, war, death, life, spirituality, love. And it's a brilliant, brilliant film. I can highly recommend it. Uh, and in it, there's a, a character called Sergeant Welsh, uh, played by Sean Penn. Uh, and he utters this line that really kind of stuck with me um, he says words to the effect of in this world a man himself is nothing and there ain't no world but this one in this world a man himself is nothing and there ain't no world but this one now something i've meditated a lot on this year you know we can wish all we want for a different world and a different set of circumstances but we're not going to get one this is our reality this is who we are so we must decide what to do with the world that we've got. You know, if you were meeting me in person now, you might be tempted to say to me, right, well, I'm thoroughly depressed now, so what, what exactly do you want me to do? Um, and as human beings, when we consider the idea of God in the light of this information, it can leave us at something of a crossroads, I find. We can look at the suffering of the world uh, and the plight that we see around us, and the fact that we're like grass and we can we can choose to denounce the idea of, of an almighty God altogether as just monstrous for, for allowing such things. But if we're to do that, then it by by definition we have to accept the alternative, which is that the un, seemingly unending stream of suffering produced by this world is completely meaningless. It carries no meaning at all. It has no purpose, it achieves nothing, it's all just a product of, of physics and biology and it was all for nothing. You know, long after we're gone, future generations might look back and have no understanding of, of what we went through or how significant we thought we were and the things that we achieved. Just as we, we often look at generations gone by <clears throat> and it's war and famine and pestilence as this kind of abstract subject that we might study in a history lesson but that's all all that it remains to us often isn't it? just just statistics just words on a page so if this is the case then we have to concede or we have to at least ask the question why do we look for meaning in anything why do we look for significance you know there is an undeniable voice within human beings that looks or hope why is that the case 
and believe it or not, I, I want this, this talk to be about hope. We must ask ourselves, why? Why is that voice within us? You know, that's the reason why we get excited about Christmas, isn't it? You know, that's the very tagline that we've used for, for this series of, of Christmas services at Christchurch, the thrill of hope. Hope is thrilling. We love hope. We know that we want it. Now, elsewhere in, in the book of Isaiah, he describes the coming of Christmas and the birth of Jesus as like we've been walking in darkness and we've seen light. You know, that image conjures up the idea of change. It conjures up the idea of being somewhere bad and awful and ending up somewhere you want to be and going through a, a wonderful transition. You know, we know that the light and goodness and hope is something we want to aspire to intrinsically as human beings. The idea of Christmas gives us hope. You know, what this passage in Isaiah is going to tell us finally is that hope is to be found in one place. There is a reason why God is giving us this information that you think is there to depress you, but there's very, very good reason for it. Now, Pastor Paul um, said something very interesting a, a few weeks ago in one of his sermons, and it, it really resonated with me and caused me to think. And he said words to the effect of, we can never find peace until we realise that we, can, we must no longer be the centre of our story and that that sort of phrase um kind of came to mind as i was looking through this passage and i kind of came to the realization that god is telling us about how fragile and limited we are because he wants to remove ourselves from the center of our thinking so that we can actually find hope and peace in something that's far more permanent than us and our fragile condition. Now, it may seem like a harsh thing to remind us of that we're like grass, but ultimately he does it out of love because he tells us that his word stands forever. Now, Jesus tells us plainly in the New Testament in a famous verse that it's, it's not the sick that need a doctor, it's the healthy. And as the divine physician, we need an accurate diagnosis from God. You know, and as I'm sure anybody listening to this has experienced at some point in their life, sometimes a diagnosis you can get from a doctor can be unbelievably painful and hard to bear. But at the same time, for that particular doctor to let us go on thinking that we're okay and we're well would just be cruel, wouldn't it? You know, no self-respecting doctor would allow you to be under the illusion that you're okay when you're not. God doesn't want us to go looking for hope in something that is ultimately unreliable. And the Bible tells us clearly that God chastises and disciplines those he loves. And as I've said before, the first two words of this chapter are an indication of God's ultimate intentions. He wants to comfort you and I and his people at this time. But it must be done with the truth. So let's just sort of cast our eyes over this passage again, if we can. Okay, verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. 
he gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even young people grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. God clearly contrasts our weakness with his immeasurable power because he wants us to rely on him. And slowly we begin to see that our significance and our limitations are exactly the reason that we can find comfort because it forces us to look to the one who created the heavens, who brought out the starry host, the one who is immeasurably more powerful than we are and much more permanent. You know, God places, think about this for a minute, God places no responsibility on us for our salvation because we are incapable of achieving it. How liberating is that? Now, I can rely totally on someone else but in order for this to be achieved my pride and my belief in my own value to some extent has to be removed god knows our weakness and he compensates with his power and his love and realizing this to my mind is the only way that we can make sense of the harsh reality of what it is to be human So as we begin now to start to think about Christmas and the coming of Jesus, it almost seems like a bit of an anticlimax maybe when we think about the Christmas story compared with this passage. You know, if you look at verse 5, it talks of the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed and everybody's going to see it. And, you know, it kind of seems to me that being born into extreme poverty in an animal's feeding trough as Jesus was doesn't necessarily seem all that glorious. You know, as we've seen already, God is acutely aware of what we are. And the glory that is to be revealed, our, our minds can't fathom it, at least not yet. So Jesus comes to share our humanity and share the sting of being a human being. And he comes in the simplest possible way to tell the simplest possible story, a solution to a problem. The problem is us, as difficult as that can be to admit. You know, we are, you know, we are not necessarily the protagonist in this story, as we've been thinking about. And, you know, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. We are the problem. And the evil within us and within the world needs to be dealt with. And the solution is a God willing to humble himself in human form and pay the penalty for sin by dying the most undignified and humiliating death because he loves us. It's the very essence of, of verse 2, if you look back at the passage, which talks of the sin of the people being paid for, the sin of the ancient Israelites. And, and just like them, our sin requires payment. Now, if something is to be paid for, by definition, there has to be a price. And for us to pay the price of our sin was utterly impossible. It was too high. So God paid the only thing that was enough to satisfy the debt, and that was his own self in the form of his son, Jesus. This is ultimately the message of Christmas. Now, I really do hope that you have a great time hope that you managed to see some of your family i hope that we can put this year behind us and i hope that we can learn from it 
and I hope that we can go forward as, as better, perhaps more, more well-rounded people. But if nothing else, I hope that this year serves to, to teach us about what we are in the light of God's wonderful truth. You know, we've had an exhausting year, there's no doubt about it. But God says to us that ultimately, in a way, that's a good thing, that we've been exhausted by it, that we've been arrested by it, that it's caused us to think, because the sooner we come to terms with this, the sooner you can come to God to find hope. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. I hope to be with you all again soon. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and yeah, have a, have a great Christmas and a, a great new year. Thank you. Take care.